have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. One zero seven seven The Bronx. One zero seven seven The Bronx. dot com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are live from the Killarney's Public House Studios at Ryder University. This is Health 411, and I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I am in the studio today with our producer, Antonia Conti, and our guest, Dr. Kim Rice Binder. Dr. Rice Binder is an assistant professor of medicine at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she is a medical oncologist who both sees patients and does research. And so we are very excited to have you here. Welcome, Dr. Rice Binder. Thank you so much for having me. And can we begin to today's segment just by giving us, maybe perhaps give us a little bit of your background and how you became a medical oncologist at the University of Pennsylvania So hospital. I had a rather a circuitous route to figuring out what I wanted to do. When I was an undergrad, I was a psychology major mm -hmm. and really liked genetics. It was one of my first courses that I took when I got to Colby College, which is where I did my undergraduate degree, um, but never really thought of medicine as something that I would pursue. I was very uh, liberal arts. I really liked writing and I really liked uh, music and theater and poetry um, and psychology, but then had this tickle of I also really liked genetics and the biological sciences. And at the very end of my <clears throat> of my uh, time there, so I think my uh, junior or senior year, I th woke up one morning and thought, well, why not give medicine a try? <laughs> because I don't know, I really don't, I'm really not sure what I want to do. And I asked my dad what he thought I should do. He was a physician. And he said, well, why don't you come to my hospital? He was actually in a New Jersey hospital, the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he said, why don't you come rotate for a couple of weeks with some of my friends and see what you think? And I uh, was very fortunate to get to spend a month with uh, Dr. Lorna Rodriguez and Dr. Darlene Gibbons, who were two gynecological oncologists who worked with my father. And it was kind of life-changing. Love at first and, sight with them. And that's a great example um, of being here in the sciences with students. They think if they want to go to medical school, they have to major in biology or biochemistry or something like that. And they should do something that makes them a well-rounded human. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, it sounds like you followed your passion. And then you know, after college, college as, as a psych major, um, you did a post-bac program. I did. I did a post-bac program and then uh, applied to medical school after that. And in between did another year. I took another year. I worked at a burn center at Bayview Medical Center in, uh, in Baltimore um, and worked with a psychologist because I had background in that on, on the psychological impact of burns. And then once I got to medical school, you know, I thought I wanted to do it. Um, and then once I got to medical school and got to start actually taking care of patients, I, I fell more and more kind of deep madly um, in love with, with the field. And, and the research piece actually came later. First came my love of taking care of people, and then okay. the research followed that. Um, you found medicine, and then did you find research after medical school? 
Yeah. And, 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 and we're, yeah. we're going to get to, yeah. to so that. Yeah. And so, Antonia, you're part of listening to the process here, is sometimes you don't have to know exactly how you're going to get there. It's mm-hmm. also not a rush. <laughs> There's right. no rush. I took years yeah. off in between almost yeah. everything. I, yeah. It was wonderful. I, I lived on my own. I In between residency and fellowship, I also did a hospitalist year. I worked. I just worked for a year. I was a normal working human for mm-hmm. a year in a hospital, um, which was really fun. Um, I think it makes you a more well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. It makes you a little, it gives you a little more perspective. Um, I was one of the older kids in, mm-hmm. the, in my medical school class. It didn't really, by a couple of years, not by that many years, but um that there's there's a, you have a whole career you have a year here or there as somebody a very wise said to me once is not going to make a difference mm. so take your time absolutely take your time there there is no on time there's only your time is what i say to students um, i like that. that's a good one yeah, yeah and it's uh, one of my roles here is on the pre-med advisor. No. <laughs> You're like, it doesn't you matter that. what you do. <laughs> um, so it's advising students just like you in the post-bac programs, I think. And so you went to medical school. I did. And at some point, how did you transition to medical school into um, medical oncology? Medical oncology. Yeah. I, um, I did my residency, and I was at Johns Hopkins, and I was incredibly drawn, consistently drawn to the cancer patients. It was a very consistent draw for me. Um, and I think it's one of those things... You you don't know exactly why, right? You don't, but I just, I would pick them out of the ER. I wanted to take care of them. I loved my time in the oncology center, which most of my friends did not. Um, I loved the acuity. I loved the, um, the multidisciplinary care, right? They need care from lots of different types of people and lots of different types of doctors. I liked that. I, I grew up in a household where both my parents worked in palliative care to some mm-hmm. degree and in cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I was used to that, those conversations. I, you know, I'd heard those on the, across the dinner table as a child. So I, I, I was drawn to mm-hmm. that. Comfortable also? with that because I it was, takes yeah. the right person. Because sometimes a lot of those conversations could potentially They're be hard. very difficult. They yes. are hard. They're hard. But um, but there's this other aspect of if I do it well, then I can still help even if I can't fix the underlying problem, right? So there's that aspect to it. Mm-hmm. So I was I really liked that stuff, um, and that that's what drew me to oncology. I knew when I was picking patients with cancer out of the ER and saying, "Can I have that one? Can I take care of that one?" And my colleagues were going, "Oh no, not again." Um, that I knew that that was yeah. that and was who I wanted. T- to we've be. had several yeah. shows. Um, on Health 411 about the difference between being healed and being cured. Yeah, and it's, so, it's, it it's seems so like good. it seems like you were very intuitive in that in, in your in your training that you got that. You can't always cure, but you can always heal. Yeah, it was it's really nice. Cool. And so you and ultimately you decided to take care of cancer patients. I did, uh, but you can't take care of all cancer patients. <laughs> you actually have an area of expertise. You, you can, but well, I choose <laughs> not to. <laughs> Some people do. Some people do. The community oncologists take care of everybody. God everybody bless them. Um, mm-hmm. But you are at a major medical center, I am. and you have some areas of special uh, specialization. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. So I, I said in the beginning that I, I really liked genetics. I always have been drawn to genetics. I did a couple of projects in genetics in, in my residency, um, actually with another Dr. Carp, uh, Judy Carp, uh, who was a leukemia physician at Johns Hopkins. Oh, okay. Um, wonderful human. Uh, do you know her? Unrelated. Unrelated. Um, so that kind of pulled me. And so I uh, I knew that I wanted to do something in genetics, and I didn't know what exactly and how to marry those two things. And I knew that I wanted to do something that had a older population in general, because those are people, it's just my, I just like that, that group of patients. And um, something that had kind of a heavy palliative care component. And they're really 
two big groups of patient populations where that's true. And one of them is in the gastrointestinal cancer, specifically pancreatic cancer, as you probably know, is a diff- mm-hmm. very difficult deadly disease, difficult to take care of, but hits all those hits all those check marks. And mm-hmm. then in addition, um, it had been learned in the decade or so before I got to Penn, maybe even a little bit longer, that there were genetic syndromes that could predispose people to pancreatic cancer. And so taking a step back, you know, pancreatic cancer for us sort of, you know, not on the cutting edge is one of those things that people think like, oh, my God, you have pancreatic cancer. There's nothing anybody can do for you. I know that's completely untrue. I know. But that that's the that, I know that is the word on the street. Absolutely. People think of like Steve Jobs, one of yes. the richest Although people in the world. He did not have pancreatic adenocarcinoma. He had a neuroendocrine tumor. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah. that he had a different I did not know. It was a pancreas tumor, but it was not the traditional oh, type. OK. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You're so welcome. You <laughs> I'm here to help. <laughs> Um, um, but people look at it, but for you, that wasn't something that scared you off. This was no. something that, that, uh, a cancer that happens in the population, let's say older, over 50 or so, but sure. my definition of older has sort of changed as so I've like gotten over older. 85. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah um, older people, but for it's, sure. an, it's a, it's relatively rare. Yeah. And it's, thank, thank goodness. Yeah, right? And so it, it hit the things that you were sort of looking for, mm-hmm. but you could have just stayed a, and taken care of the patients. Yeah, but but that's not satisfying enough. There's there's for me, um, there is a great joy. Intelli- I'm, I'm assuming intellectually you, I'm satisfying. You mean intellectually satisfying. Intelli- yeah, no, no. There's a great joy in taking care of the patients, and about fifty percent of my job is taking care of the mm-hmm. patients. And taking care of the patients is what drives you forward to do the other work, right? Um, but if you can only just offer the same thing and you're not pushing the envelope yourself, for me that was not. And, and you mean the envelope between what's known and unknown? What's known and unknown. What um, what predicts for different um, treatment responses so that you can pick the best therapy for your patient and then also the development of new drugs that will both help people live longer and and improve quality of life, both of those things. And you you bring up and (laughs) completely unprompted, but one of the things that that I'm assuming is one of your areas of specialty and you hinted on it, and I want to get to it in the next segment, is the idea of personalized medicine. Yeah. It's not the same medicine for everybody. Um, and you're, you're nodding. Our radio audience can't see that. But that's something, Agreed. That, <laughs> I w- that's something that I would like to explore with you mm-hmm. in our next segment. Unfortunately, we have to take a, a quick break for some underwriting. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 TheBronx.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx or 1077thebronc.com. Live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Antonia Conti, our producer, and our guest, Dr. Kim Rice Binder, a medical oncologist and assistant professor of medicine at uh, University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And at the end of the last segment, we were beginning to talk about Dr. Rice Binder's area of expertise, um, and which is pancreatic 
pancreatic cancer, uh, which she was attracted to as she became a medical school, medical resident, and started working with the patients. But she does research to treat people who have pancreatic cancer. And she brought up an interesting idea. And it's an idea that is sort of talked about, um, but probably not explained often. It's the idea of personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it relates to your research on pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so uh, initially when drug development was early uh, in its early stages and we were treating cancers, cancers were treated almost exclusively by the type of cancer Mm -hmm. that it was, right? So if you had breast cancer, you got a treatment Mm -hmm. X. If you had liver cancer, you got treatment Y. Um, And what we've learned over time is that... This is probably recent time. This this is is recent time. This is this is uh, this is a decade old, if that. Okay. Um, is that there are actually maybe even more important than the cell of origin that the cancer starts in, the, the organ that it starts in, is the molecular are the molecular characteristics, so the specific mutations that start that cancer that are responsible. And the for mutations that are come back to the genes, is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so the, the, the gene, every normal genetics. cell, yeah, yeah, every normal cell has um, has the same. I call it the recipe book, right? The same genome, and every normal cell, right? It comes from your mother and your father. Get half from mom, half from dad, and every cell should have the same one. Mm-hmm. Um, and each cell follows its own recipe out of the out of the cookbook, let's say, to become whatever cell that it, you know it should be. But sometimes you get errors, and specific errors in those spontaneous errors, errors that happen either um, under from from exposures to something or completely spontaneously without an obvious trigger, can change the cell's behavior so that when it's not supposed to be dividing, it instead starts to grow. Mm-hmm. And so what we've learned in in recent, like you said, in recent history, right. and the cell that starts dividing and stops being, in your case, a pancreatic cell, mm-hmm. is is the origin of what people call cancer. Yes, that's, that's, that's what cancer. It, so it stopped being a cell in the pancreas that's doing the normal things of a pancreas would do. Correct. Or a part of the pancreas, whatever, wherever it is. And it's become a tumor. Yeah, it becomes malignant. Mm-hmm. That's what we call it. And it, it grows when it shouldn't. And so it blocks things locally because it's growing out of control, right? Just like something like a weed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also invades into vessels and invades into lymphatic systems and starts to spread into other areas of the body. And so that's what malignancy is. It's that, inv- it's that growth, invasion, and spreading. Uh, when a cell is not supposed to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And and it's, so it's listening, the cell is in fact listening to something about its DNA, but, it, but it's listening to a, to a, a bad sound. It's just at a bad concert. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there are all different ways that this can happen. Mm-hmm. I don't want to oversimplify. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I couldn't explain it adequately because I'm not a I'm not a basic scientist. But I am happy for you to put your nerd hat on. I will. I'll do, I'll, I will try I'll do to my explain best. it. Yeah. So it, it it so so sometimes there are genetic mutations. There are also things called epigenetic mm-hmm. mutations, which are on top of the DNA and turn a specific gene on or off without the gene actually being altered. It's just that the gene should have been silent and now is on mm-hmm. or the reverse. Um, and there are changes in what's called the micro Environment, which is the area around the tumor, which either help the tumor cells grow more or so protect. So there are tumor, the there are tumor promoter genes, yes. tumor suppressor genes. Correct. Right. There are also signals that there the cell can read. Yeah. Could, could, could change what the cell is doing. And the immune system around the cell plays mm-hmm. a role too. So immune cells, our immune system, is supposed to weed these, weed these out. Um, and so when that doesn't happen, um, you get. You stu- do you study this? I do. Awesome. <laughs> what part, what aspect of it? I'm curious. Um, so I specifically look at PD-1 knockout mice. So, yeah, it's a whole really big detailed thing, but 
It's really interesting. Right. So PD one is one of those one of those hot mm-hmm. areas in cancer uh, therapeutics right now, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. um, cells that upregulate PDL one um, are then potentially set, or that the immune cells are, are silenced or turned yep. into T regs. They're not doing anything. And so if you can reverse that process, wake up the immune system, you can cure that. You can in theory cure the cancer, and that's been successful in some cases. Mm-hmm. But one of the other ways um, that I work in personalized medicine is in predisposition syndrome. So if I, as a human, have a um, have a mutation in all my cells in something called, let's say, a BRCA gene or BRCA gene, okay. um, and I become a normal human, and my I have two copies of every gene. So I have one copy that doesn't work, but I have one copy that does. So my working copy is able to um, function as normal, and I don't get cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the BRCA genes, the one and two, are usually associated not with pancreatic cancer. They get their, their name and they're probably, you're looking at me funny, but they are sort of known as being associated with it breast cancer. It has the cancer. name, right? BRCA, the, the breast cancer breast gene. Cancer. Right, for sure. And so how, do you, so how does something that has a name like that be associated with pancreatic cancer? Because it was initially, when it was initially discovered, it was associated with breast cancer, but it is also associated with ovarian cancer, as, as mm-hmm. many people are aware. Mm-hmm. And then people are a little bit less aware that there is an increased risk for prostate cancer, melanoma, and pancreatic cancer with this gene. So you're hitting both males and females. You're here. hitting men and women. Yeah, okay. my clinic is men and women. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, pro- and they get prostate as well, prostate mm-hmm. cancer. They can. Mm-hmm. So the, the, in, the, you know, there's a lot that you can unpack there. There's how do you, you know, there's the screening aspect. So if we know there's a, there's an increased risk um, for pancreatic cancer with those genes. So one question is how do we screen? But then the other thing is how do we, um, how does that predisposition go to the cancer? So what happens? What makes that transition? And then the third piece, which is what I really work on, is how do you exploit that for better therapy? How do you turn that? It's actually a Achilles heel a little bit of the cancer to have a BRCA gene. It makes mm. it exquisitely sensitive to certain therapies. Mm. And so how do you exploit well, that and treat patients if, better? If a patient came in and suspected or already knows they have pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. um, how do you figure out? what's happening in the pancreas in terms, in of, terms of the genetics yes. so so there are recent recommendations that were put in place in the last year by our international guidelines that every person with pancreatic cancer should get genetic screening mm-hmm. every single person should get a genetic test to see if they have one of the BRCA genes or other associated genes. There are other genes also that increase the risk for this disease. So in fact, although it's not 100% being done in the community yet, and even not in academic centers yet, that's actually the recommendation. Before that recommendation, what we were doing I was finding patients either in one of two ways. One, patients already knew they had the gene. So they're, you know, in, with BRCA, there's a risk for breast cancer at a young age, early breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So maybe the person had breast cancer at 30, were diagnosed with the BRCA gene because in breast cancer oncology, everybody's tested. And then okay. when they're 65, I meet them. Um, the other way is that I would take a family history. Um, there is a higher risk of BRCA mutations in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So I would usually ask, do you have any um, Ashkenazi background? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's a, that the rate is higher there. So you want to ask that because it would heighten your threshold to test somebody. And then we ask about family history. Anybody with ovarian cancers or anybody with melanomas or anyone with breast cancer. And initially, I would just take people where uh, I had a suspicion. I had a clinical suspicion. I think this person might have a genetic problem that would change my therapy approach. So I would send them to the genetics mm-hmm. department. Um, now, we, we really are testing, at, at least at Penn, we really are testing everybody. Okay. So it's no longer one cancer, same treatment for all. It seems to be no. what you're going, you're going in. And so, so 
in my understanding of um, my limited understanding of pancreatic cancer, is that uh, some of the the drugs that are the that are that are used would be drugs that contain um, some heavy metals like yeah, platinum, platinum, platinum for sure, especially, very especially. good. And is that is that still the standard of care? How does that relate yeah. to the the personal medicine idea? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. So, so there, the standard drugs are kind of if you if you meet someone for the first time and mm-hmm. and and you're going to treat them with chemo, there are two sets of standard drugs. One of them contains platinum, and one of them doesn't. They're just two. They've both been they're both approved in the first line setting, which means they both can be used when a person is first diagnosed to try to get the disease under control. Mm-hmm. And 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 what you mean by that is slow down or stop the correct. cell dividing process. That's correct. Th- that's what under control means. Correct. So yeah. prevent the cancer from growing further mm-hmm. and even shrink it down to relieve symptoms and mm-hmm. to kind of get the person you know keep the person healthy. Okay. So there are two. So co- that, we call that, them cocktails. So that would be goal number one if somebody presented to you in the clinic. At least, well, it, well, yes. Well, type, type them. Try to get an idea on what the reason they might have pancreatic cancer. So, well, so the so the two chemotherapy drugs, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, one of them, one of these combos, has mm-hmm. a heavy metal component, okay. and the other doesn't. Mm-hmm. And what we know about BRCA-related cancers is they're super sensitive to heavy metal okay. drugs. So that's true of the ovarian, the breast cancer. Um, uh, patients and the question was was it also true in the pancreas cancer patients and it turns out to be true so it gives you an even stronger reason to know up front right when you meet somebody whether they fall into that category so that you can treat them with drugs that they are going to be hopefully much more sensitive Respon- to responsive yeah. and so just to put it out there are you saying that if you have pancreatic cancer and one of the BRCA mutations mm-hmm. you are particularly sensitive yep. to these platinum yes. containing drugs we've shown it. We've so that shown could be it. very yep. helpful to you to know that it's extremely helpful to know that and it's actually critical for your oncologist to test you if you haven't been tested um, better prognosis it's a much better prognosis if you know if you know you have the problem. It's a double-edged sword, right? The gene gives you the problem, but once you know you have the gene, your outcome has been shown. There's been shown in multiple retrospective series, not prospective, but a lot of consistent data that if you are treated with platinum-based, heavy metal-based mm-hmm. chemotherapy, your outcome is dramatically better than if you are not. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly want to follow up with you on that because that's a fascinating thing. Um, after some brief underwriting announcements, you're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We are in the studio today with Dr. Kim Rice Binder, a medical oncologist who studies pancreatic cancer at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Uh, Dr. Rice Binder is not only a physician who sees patients uh, uh, who primarily have pancreatic cancer, but she also does research to help better treat patients who have pancreatic cancer. And at the end of the last segment, we were talking about a family of drugs that contain platinum. Um, these would be drugs like cisplatin and mm-hmm. things that are some, some of the first-line things that can be given to somebody who has um, pancreatic cancer, especially, I'm going to summarize, that yeah. have the BRCA mutations because they are more sensitive to some of these heavy metals and sort of stopping tumor development. And can you tell us a little bit about the biology of cancer and 
there's an added layer here of mm-hmm. a whole other family of drugs that you want to get to. Mm-hmm. And you can you can you take us on that journey? Sure. Um, so, li- like we were talking about before, the BRCA, uh, the lack of functional BRCA, right? So that the BRCA, if the BRCA gene is mutated, and the protein, the BRCA protein that's supposed to be produced is not getting adequately produced, the cell is exquisitely sensitive to DNA damage because the BRCA protein is responsible for fixing double-stranded DNA breaks. So you have two strands of DNA. If you get a break um, for some reason, you get a crack in the DNA, this happens. Um, And so somebody who has a mutation in that gene would make an abnormal protein so the fix wouldn't happen. Correct, but not in all the body cells, right? Those people grow up mm-hmm. and are normal because one of the copies is working. But if you lose the second copy, then you start to get problems. Mm-hmm. There start to be an overwhelming number of mutations. You get cancer. Um, and that's for sure uh, oversimplifying it uh, because it's not actually always true. But for the sake of the discussion, we'll say this is the problem. They can't fix double-stranded mm-hmm. DNA break, uh, DNA breaks. Platinum therapies, uh, specifically cisplatin, uh, actually causes DNA adducts, makes the DNA stiff and cracks it and creates double-stranded DNA breaks. And so the cells that can't repair double-stranded DNA breaks, as you might expect, are very sensitive to that mm-hmm. treatment. You break it, they can't fix it. Um, oxaliplatin, which is another platinum, that we, platinum agent that we use, uh, is less well understood in, in terms of its uh, the reason that it works so well in pancreatic cancer, but it's still a platinum drug. It also causes adducts, but it has a different primary mechanism and is kind of less well worked out. Uh, But either way, both drugs work really well. Both platinum, heavy metal platinums work well in this population. So the problem with platinum drugs, you know, they're wonderful. They melt, they can melt the tumors if you're lucky, but you can really get a great great response and patients feel much better when the disease is under control as you might imagine so under control is the goal here under not, not control. cure we're talking about metastatic patients where, where there's no curable option right. curative so option yeah there's a whole different basket for the curative mm-hmm. uh, patients um, but the problem in incurable pancreatic cancer up until this point in clinical medicine is that chemotherapy is the is the only thing we've had so you start a patient on chemo and initially they feel much better because their symptoms are better because their cancer is smaller but eventually the toxicity of the chemotherapy and I don't know you may know you probably know about platinum heavy metals and what they can do to mm-hmm. human beings it's not pretty and so over time six months four months six months eight months ten months in patients are really the human you're trying mm-hmm. to treat is yeah, really they're, getting they're, into they're, trouble they cause neurotoxic I mean it's terribly neuropathic yeah, right yeah. they're very neuropathic they mm-hmm. cause a lot of fatigue um, some of them uh, cisplatin also causes ototoxicity causes hearing loss it can cause kidney failure mm-hmm. so there's a lot of problems with these and so one of the major shifts um, um, that we are trying to, to work out is how to not do that to people. How to, now that we have drugs that really work, because again, they're sensitive, so you could have a patient for years, potentially, and I have, have had for years, sometimes patients on these drugs. Um, it's just not tenable. You can't do it. So could you come up with an alternative option, something that's less toxic and still maintains that disease control? So one, there's this category of drugs, and, and they're, um, they're quite well known now in the in community for ovarian cancer and for breast cancer. They're called PARP inhibitors. And what does PARP stand for? for Poly-ADP ridose uh, polymerase. I promise you it wouldn't be a test. That was so <laughs> mean of you. <laughs> I apologize. But what, but what that is, it's basically a, it's an en- another enzyme. It's a different it's enzyme. An enzyme protein that's also involved with... In DNA repair. With DNA, DNA repair. Correct. Yeah, yes. So PARP is involved in a 
a different part of DNA repair. It's involved in single-stranded breaks, so when you break just one of the two strands. And that actually happens very frequently, spontaneously in various in cells. Um, usually the PARP, the PARP protein goes down there and kind of, again, very simple model, but goes down there, fixes that single-stranded mm-hmm. break, and then releases, and everybody goes on their way. If you inhibit single-stranded repair, one strand can't get fixed. If you inhibit the PARP with a PARP inhibitor, right? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the concept. The family of drugs. The family. Mm-hmm. Then the the break actually worsens on its own. It degenerates and eventually becomes a double-stranded break. And the cells, again, these cells can't fix double-stranded mm-hmm. breaks. Um, if you keep the PARP there with something called PARP trapping, which is another thing that PARP inhibitors mm-hmm. do, they keep the PARP protein and, and that, on the DNA. It's one of the questions I was having in my head. So if you have, let's say, an abnormal pancreas that has a tumor in it that might mm-hmm. have some of these features, if you give an injection of that drug or a pill of that drug, the drug's going everywhere. And it can have that effect everywhere. It, and so one of the goals then would be how do you trap it into the organ where it's needed? So uh, it turns out uh, you don't have to uh, because every other normal cell has a functional copy of the BRCA BRCA gene. So those cells, so my eyeball cells, my hands, you know, my gut cells, all these, every other cell may have one errant copy, but the other copy works. And so those cells, the toxicity of these drugs Mm -hmm. actually isn't that bad. Actually isn't that high. So it's much less, much, much, much less than chemotherapy. And so patients who are on their their pills. So patients on those, these drugs go back to work. Neuropathy disappears. Fatigue goes away. These people can kind of live a normal life. So at UPenn and this, um, we developed a trial. And we said, okay, we'll take patients, and I, I developed this with, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Dr. Susan Domchak, who's the head of our Basser Center for BRCA at Penn and has been my mentor since I've gotten there. We developed a trial. We said, all right, we're going to change the model. We're going to take people off their chemotherapy. We're going to give BRCA patients chemotherapy with platinum for four months, and then we're going to stop. We're going to stop their chemo. Nobody does this. This is not a model that we use in pancreas cancer. And we're going to change their treatment and treat them with a PARP inhibitor and see if we can... Uh, if we can continue to control the disease and spare the human, make the person, make life better Mm -hmm. for that person. Um, there was a big national study that was released uh, over the summer, actually looking at this at well, as well with a different PARP inhibitor in a slightly different population. Um, ours is a little more expansive than, than theirs, but it showed that it actually has activity. And so you can keep people off their chemotherapy for sometimes years, not always. Sometimes it doesn't work and nothing is perfect in medicine. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that. But sometimes people are on these drugs for literal years without being on chemotherapy for metastatic pancreatic cancer. And you can basically keep the pancreatic cancer at bay. Correct. From doing that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So why aren't the PARP inhibitors the first-line treatment? Because nobody's brave enough to try it. Um, when a person comes in with a diagnosis, very often they're really symptomatic. The, uh, pancreas, the pancreas is right kind of in the middle of the abdomen, and it it's, sits around a couple of other vital structures. Mm-hmm. It's right next to the gut, the duodenum. Um, it is right next to a bunch of nerves, including the celiac nerve. If it gets wrapped up in that, people get terrible pain. Um, people often can't eat. They've lost weight. There's a lot going on when someone is diagnosed. And um, at this moment... and 
and it's not that it necessarily could never be done, but at this moment, um, you know, chemotherapy is approved, and we know at least again mm-hmm. we're talking just about this population that these platinum drugs usually work very very well, and so we usually use those to get they're cytotoxic, right? Those mm-hmm. drugs are cell killers, so they just kill everything, which is why they're toxic, but also why they work so well in the, against the cancer. So we usually start with that um, to cool everything off, to get the cancer calm down, get every get the patient's symptoms under control, and then we feel more safe switching. The other reason is that it seems that PARP inhibitors may may, and this is not 100 percent certain work better in the lower the lower uh, disease burden so the mm-hmm. less cancer you have left maybe the fewer opportunities for the cancer to find a way around the PARP inhibitor so those are the two reasons. Yeah. I remember reading a paper too in, in science a couple years ago now about using PARP inhibitors to treat Parkinson's disease early stages of Parkinson's yes, disease. Yes I've heard that too to, I don't know to, much about to, it yeah, but yeah. It, 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 to present, prevent some of the cell death in uh-huh. Parkinson's as well so there, there might be a lot of usage. Applicability. But, but, uh, yeah. yeah in terms of that in terms of that well, What's interesting is that around in um, one of the interesting things is that again it's coming back to this the biology is more important than the cell of origin. Mm-hmm. They're approved. They work in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, and pancreatic cancer when those diseases are driven by BRCA. Right. So they work across. So the so part of the personalized medicine coming back to that is to you know these these treatments won't work for everybody the idea is they to won't. get screened right. to see if you are in the right demographic right. that that this would work right and is this would it is it more likely to work if you're a male a female no. depending on your ethnic background no. or your age or anything like that if you have the gene then it's more likely to if you have a, a, a pathogenic mutation mm-hmm. meaning a real a real quote unquote mutation in the gene it's more likely to work again the percentage of people who carry those genes it's higher in Ashkenazi and not people of Ashkenazi mm-hmm. Jewish heritage but no if you have it it doesn't matter if you're male female ethnicity doesn't matter it, it should still be effective and mm-hmm. it's again not for everybody but for a lot of people yeah Excellent. We will continue this conversation in a few moments. We're going to take a quick break for underwriting. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, joined in the studio today with Dr. Jim, <laughs> Dr. Kim Rice. <laughs> I apologize. Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ricebender is a expert in treating patients who have pancreatic cancer, and she is also Excuse me, associated with the Basser Center, where she is one of the young investigators, and you have won awards there. I mean, I have, yeah, I'm very lucky. Congratulations, too. thank you. Um, at the, but at the end of the last segment, you were saying that um, you were talking about PARP inhibitors, and they work best, or have been worked historically, when people have been treated with platinum-containing drugs mm-hmm. and stabilize pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. and then they start this other drug treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I was wondering in the break was. Aren't patients terrified of the fact that they're on these chemotherapeutic you know, treatments and they're doing okay? And then you're saying, well, let's, let's stop. Let's, t- let's switch it up. Um, excellent question. And the answer is no. 
Um, so when we first started, when we proposed this trial, mm -hmm. it was actually one of my major concerns. Patients are going to be too scared to go off what's working. It's a deadly disease. I get that. I, you know, or their physicians are going to be too scared to take them off the treatment that's working, which I would also completely understand. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, and this was a really emotional, actually emotional as well as intellectual lesson for me. Chemo is really, really awful. That's what I learned because there was patients were flying internationally and nationally to get on this really, drug. Really? To recruit? To, yes. So as you were doing your clinical trials, one of your jobs is to recruit patients. Yes, and but I didn't have to. Sometimes that can be very hard. I was extremely lucky. The BRCA gene is actually relatively rare in pancreatic cancer. It's not It's not that most of our patients have this gene. And so one of the concerns from our, you know, our scientific group at Penn was you're not going to be able to accrue this. And we said, okay, well, let's give us four years to put 42 patients on. And we accrued it completely in two years. And the patients came and made a geo map of where they came from um, all over the U.S. and uh, at least, I'm trying to think, three international patients yeah. from Europe how, and from How South did America. people find out about your relatively small clinical trial at, you know, in the they, small town of Philadelphia? It turned, yeah, the small town of Philadelphia. Um, they... Uh, I think what's happened is as PARP inhibitors have started to kind of get into the lay press a little bit, um, especially as ovarian and breast cancer patients are benefiting from them dramatically, people are looking, people are smart um, and getting smarter and savvier and are on the internet and are talking to their doctors and are saying, what about this other option for me? Mm -hmm. And what I learned is that no physician, no medical oncologist really wants to tie somebody to chemotherapy for the rest of their life. And a pa patients are honestly, and it's, it's hard to say this, but they're honestly quite desperate in some cases to get off of it. And you know, when pancreatic cancer was so untreatable and people didn't live very long, it wasn't such a chemo, cumulative chemotoxicity wasn't such a problem. Oh, but now they're doing so well, yeah, now the problem is better, the toxicity, yeah. right? So patients were, um, there was, I, I've, I've never, I don't remember a single patient saying, well, why would I do this? They were, uh, it was the reverse. They were coming in droves to, to be part of it. Yeah, no one said, oh my God, you got to get me get back on the... Get me back on the chemo. Well, in fact, that was one of the harder parts of the study because uh, in cancer care, in the incurable setting of anything, nothing works forever. Nothing does okay. because a cancer will, and this is why we have to do better and why this is not the end. All this is mm -hmm. great. This is nice research, but this is never the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, um, although some of the patients on the trial have been on for the full two years that I'm talking about and are still on it, um, of course, people have progressed. That meaning progressed, meaning the cancer started to grow again. The cancer figures mm -hmm. out a way around the PARP inhibitor. When you do these studies, are they double blind or are they? This open? is a single arm. They know exactly they, they, what they're getting. They know, and they're all you, getting it. You know what you're getting. And they know what they're getting, and okay. they're all getting a drug. Okay. Nobody's getting a sugar pill. Okay. Um, and so when the cancer started to grow again, I've had I've had sometimes some of my hardest conversations with patients about you have to go back to the chemo. And you know, the first time they didn't know what they were getting into. And so they were just get me on a drug. I want to live. But now they know what they're going back to. And some of the hardest conversations I've had with people is about you've, you've got to go back. Yeah. We've got to put you back on that. And some of them have refused. Yeah. So the state of the art is not at the point where you can say, well, you might not have to go back on chemo. We can double your dose not of, yet. of no. these PARP No, the next generation of studies needs to be, do we either put the PARP with something else to make it mm -hmm. work even better, or what, do we, or what are the reasons people progress? What are the resistance mechanisms? What are the reasons the cancer starts to grow again? And how do we then target that? Right. And I wonder, too, if you wouldn't have to do as intense chemo, you could do a session of chemo, treat with PARP, mm -hmm. do another session of chemo, and sort of, you know, inter inter intersperse inter inter it. to sort of mm -hmm. reduce some of the side effects mm -hmm. of those sort of things but you meant you mentioned like some of the the clinical work you're doing can you tell us a little bit about so like 
there's got to be new ones coming down the pike. New, new of, trials? Yeah, yeah, new trials. So what, what, <laughs> what do you what, mean? What's going on in your um, lab? What's going on? In my, I don't have a lab. Let's just be clear about <laughs> okay, that. Okay. okay. Uh, my lab is the clinic. Um, so a couple of new things. So one question, right? So only about uh, 5 to 8% of people with pancreas cancer will have one of the mutations that we're talking about. So one of the major questions is how do we, what other mutations might have the same clinical behavior, mm. the same phenotype? Um, what other groups of patients can we try to use this maintenance strategy for, right? Because everybody is on chemo forever, and that's, this isn't, it isn't nice to just focus on this one group. So one of the other trials that I opened uh, around the same time that I opened the one we've been talking about is another PARP inhibitor trial, but it's actually a PARP inhibitor combined with either an anti-PD-1 or an anti-CTLA-4 oh, drug. Oh, okay. And it's for patients who have, again, shown that they are platinum sensitive, so they have shown that their tumors quiet down after four months, but they don't have to have a, muta- a specific mutation. And our hypothesis was that the behavior of exquisite platinum sensitivity might be a biomarker, might be our clinical signal that the person has problem with DNA repair because they're responding to heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can use the same strategy. So we have one kind of as an all-comer. They're allowed to have a mutation, but they don't have to have one to be on the study. So that's ongoing. Um, and then the, there are two other kind of questions in my mind that are currently going to be addressed. One is, uh, what about other tumor types? What about non-breast ovarian, non-pancreas? What about other tumor types? So we are also part of a national study. I'm actually the overall leader, PI of the study, the principal investigator mm-hmm. for this. It'll be international, looking at the same issue all across solid tumor cancers. So we'll be trying to right. use the same strategy. If they have a BRCA or PALB2 or RAD51C or D mutation, these are the... And these are all different All the sa- different, but the same idea. Same, yeah, same DNA behavior, repair. same behavior. Mm-hmm. And putting taking those people off their chemo and putting them on a PARP. So that's, that's happening so that we can open the door to other cancer types and see if the same thing holds true. And then finally, with the PARP inhibitors working, we are following the ovarian and breast cancer groups by... Um, doing what's called an adjuvant trial. So if PARP inhibitors work in the metastatic setting, in the incurable setting, what about the curable setting? So we're opening a national trial through a cooperative group called ECOG-ACRON, and I am leading that trial as well in the overall national PI for that study. Um, I'm too busy, I'm just realizing. Uh-huh. Um, where we will take patients who had a resection, a, cure, a, a, a surgery, surgery. For, to try to cure them of their pancreas cancer, have had their chemo that goes with that, because there's chemo that goes with that, and then we will put them on a PARP inhibitor. Um, or a placebo in that case, in the curative intent mm-hmm. setting, to see if the PARP inhibitor yeah. can help. See that? See that would be a major, a major advance if you can go just from you know, palliative care to, yes. to cure. That, we that's would love to. Huge. Yes, I agree. That would be mm-hmm. that would be if we can cure more people. Then then that's that's obviously the the way we'd like to go. Mm-hmm. So the, so coming sort of. Oh, not full circle, but quarter of the way there. You say nowadays, if you have pancreatic cancer, right? There's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it sort of it sucks to have that kind of cancer, yeah. but there's some optimism, and the I can see the energy and the ideas that that you're radiating here in the studio might might make one think is you know you know I might have a chance. If, yeah. If they, if they walk in. Yeah. There's more. There. There are many more options than there were. There's a reason to have hope, and there's and there is a finally some personalized medicine that can be applied to this disease, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. And getting back to where you said you started is you started. You wanted to work with patients. You like the patients. Yeah. And you're doing everything you can to keep the patients around as long as possible. I like. <laughs> that is the goal. That's the goal. To, and there's and there's a lot more work to do. I just want to be clear about that too. There's yeah. so much more work to do, but it's uh, it's worthwhile work. It's good yeah. work. 
And you mentioned, too, that none of this happens in a vacuum. You're, you've got collaborators internationally. You've oh. got collaborators that you pe- probably all over the United States as well. I, w- I do, and I would be... Um, I would be no you, you're not you're nowhere without a team right so I have had tremendous mentors who have have been supportive and have pushed me you know kind of let me stand on their shoulders mm-hmm. so to speak and have worked with me and then as I've gotten a little more established I've been doing this for about four and a half years now um, I've connected with with international and national uh, people who are interested in the same area and it's actually kind of a small group in pancreas who do this genomic stuff and so I've become friends and colleagues with those p- people mm-hmm. and that helps move the work yeah and I can imagine it's a it's a younger crowd because for a long time people were hands off the pancreas <laughs> I'm going to stay silent on that they're okay. all extremely young <laughs> <laughs> and, and very, 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 very motivated and doing some um, very interesting things. And, and so uh, we are sort of running out of time. Is there anything you'd like to share with us at, at the end of our conversation? I want to make sure you have a chance to get it in. No, just just that this is a this is a field of desperate need. This mm-hmm. is still a very unmet medical need, this group of people. And uh, and I'm very fortunate to get to work work with these patients and to try to move it forward a little bit for them. Yeah. And, and you found a passion. And I uh, that for anybody in I a do career that, that has a passion and is feel motivated, um, you, you seem like you're, and tell me if I'm wrong, a great example of somebody who fi- finds a passion that you really don't work a day in your life. Even though, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're loving it. It oh, is fun. I do love it. No, I do yeah. love it. And, and, and I, I can imagine your patients enjoy interacting with you. And, and, and that's not true um, about interactions with patients and every physician. So thank you. That's I, very I, kind. I, I, would, I imagine them being thank very, you. very And lucky. thank you so much for having me. This yeah. was so much yeah. fun. So with, with that, unfortunately, we have to end the program. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from Clarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Rider University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to talk about all issues associated with healthcare. I'd like to thank today's guest, Dr. Kim Rice Binder, a medical oncologist at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital with an expertise in pancreatic cancer. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider University, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under academics and academic programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.